0: I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter ten. We'll read verses nine through thirteen. Verse 9, which we'll, we'll start a sentence even though it's halfway through a sentence here. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Brothers and sisters, I began recently in our church in Surrey a series on the Belgic Confession, so this was the beginning of that. And um, whenever we're preaching on the confessions, if we're comfortable with that kind of language, it's it's good to ask ourselves what exactly we're doing. We are a church of God centered on the scriptures, on the word of God. The confessions are not the Bible. So why do we read the confessions in in worship and and even more than just reading them, why do we use them in our preaching? Um, These are some questions we'll look at. As we're doing this, we're preaching, I'm preaching the truth of Scripture uh, for us, and, and we're just doing it according to the topics that are outlined in the Belgic Confession, so that's important to start off with. The confessions are a summary of what we believe the Bible teaches, a summary of the basic doctrine that we hold to. But Romans 10 verse 9 might beg the question, why have confessions? Because it says here, if you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. And that sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? So you can imagine somebody saying, maybe you've heard this, maybe you've wondered this. I don't need any creed or confession except for Christ. Just give me Jesus. That's what I like. Besides, too much doctrine, that that just divides us anyways. Well, what is doctrine? Doctrine is teaching or instruction. Those are synonyms for doctrine. Doctrine. And you can imagine somebody thinking, okay, but I like stories. I'd much rather hear stories than instruction. What is the Bible? Well, it's a book of stories. It's actually one big story, the story of redemption, the story of of God's working through his people and for his people. And it's also a book of instruction, though. It's a story that teaches. So you have the drama of Christ and you have the doctrine of Christ, and those two things go hand in hand. You can't separate them. So doctrine's part of Scripture. It, is doctrine relevant, though? Is, is, is it not maybe the intellectual part of things, the teaching part, and it's not so practical? Well, actually, doctrine is intensely practical because what we believe shapes what we do. And right? our knowledge of God leads to, to our service, uh, our love of God, rather, which leads to our service to God. Those things are all connected. Our practice is theological and our uh, Theology, therefore, is practical. Doctrine is practical. So if you're a Christian, doctrine matters to you. And we need to be taught it. Still, you could imagine somebody saying once again, well, how do confessions fit into that? Because I actually only want the Bible, thank you very much. You know, sola scriptura, isn't that a principle from the Reformation? The Bible alone? Why do we add confessions? well, we should start off answering that by saying we're not adding anything. We refer to the confessions as secondary standards, and, and that's very helpful. They're standards in the sense that we hold to them, but they're secondary in the sense that they're under the authority of Scripture. Scripture is the, the only norming norm, is what some theologians have said. It's the only real standard before us, even as the confessions our standards, too. And actually, confessions help us maintain the principle of sola scriptura. They don't take away from that. They actually help us maintain that. I'm going to explain that to you with three for three reasons, using three I words, words that start with I. The first one is, confessions help us avoid immaturity. They help us avoid immaturity. Um, to get at this, have you ever... For those of you who are old enough to, for this to be true about you, did you have a favorite song, let's say from the early 90s, um, that you thought was so great back then, but now as you hear it, you're like, how did I ever like that? Uh, you, you realize maybe that it was, wasn't such a good song after all, but you were just caught up in the time kind of thing. Um, that's how it can be with statements of faith. Every church has a statement of faith, Some of them are good, some of them are mediocre, some of them are not so good, but it's easy to come up with a a basic statement of faith overnight, and many people have done that. But a confession is a classic statement of faith. A confession represents the best of the church over a long period of time. That's the whole reason we have these confessions from hundreds of years ago. The reason they've endured is because they've been recognized generation after generation for their faithfulness and for their helpfulness. And so if we're humbled to hear from them, the wisdom, this collected wisdom from generations, it can save us a lot of time, first of all. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. It can also save us a lot of grief. Because heresies, false teaching tends to recycle itself. And so this truth can ground us to avoid that. But isn't it all out of date? You know, Pastor, these are 400, 500-year-old documents. Shouldn't we have something a little more contemporary, a little more more relevant? Well, there is a place for new confessional statements, um, more detailed statements on the issues of our time. I have a friend who's a pastor And he just uh, published, uh, you can buy this through Ligonier, I believe, the New Reformation Catechism on Human Sexuality. And he mimics the, uh, his consistory approved this, by the way, he mimics the Heidelberg Catechism structure and he works through the issue of sexuality, which is obviously a major issue of our time. And so there is a place for making new statements. Although it's not as if the church has never had to deal with issues like abortion, euthanasia, transgenderism and these things before. But if the church is one, if the church is one across all time and place, then doesn't it make sense that this confession would be enduring, that it would be relevant even from hundreds of years ago? If the body of Christ is one from the beginning of history to the end with the same Lord who is Lord over all, so verse 12 tells us here. Well, then the message of the church basically remains the same, doesn't it? Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. So confessions help bind us to that church of all times and places and avoid immaturity. Secondly, confessions help us avoid idiosyncrasies. Idiosyncrasies. There are more professing Christians today following celebrity leaders than ever before. And so often you see it. You, you see that there's some charismatic figure and people latch on to that figure and they become followers of, of him or her and, and there's this whole movement behind them. Um, the most extreme examples obviously are cults, but it happens at a less extreme level as well. So if we want to avoid all of that, if we want to avoid just chasing a trend, chasing a movement, confessions help us. They help ground us in something bigger than a trend of our time. In Article 1 here we say, We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths. We all. It's not my confession only. It's not my pastor's confession only. It's the church's confession. We the church. We the people, so to speak. It's also helpful as we think about avoiding idiosyncrasies here. It's also helpful for outsiders who might be coming into the church and they they wonder what we're all about. One of you could be talking to somebody, and uh, an acquaintance, and trying to tell them about your church, and, and you say, well, here's kind of the things that we teach, right? And then they have maybe some questions, and you say, oh, just trust me, this is how it is. You know, you'll see when you come. Some people have, have had that experience where, where there's, a, there's a bit of a bait and switch where they think they're going to church for one thing, but they find out that these other things are happening there. And it's all because it's just based on a word that they heard from somebody or the word of the particular pastor or the particular group of leaders at that given time when they come into the church. But if we want to be transparent to people, which they like, we can say, here's what we hold to. Now, obviously, we want to say, here's what we hold to. But under that, as we seek to be more clear about what it is that we believe— We have a separate book with the confessions. You have it in the back of your songbook here. You can say, well, if you go through this, this clarifies what we're all about as a church. And it's objective. It's transparent. It's not a secret. You're not going to all of a sudden have somebody come in and change it all up. We are who we are. So confessions help us avoid idiosyncrasies. And then third, finally, the third thing, confessions help us avoid idolatry. Idolatry. Because the reality of how you and I operate, and we're all the same in this way, apart from the Spirit of God at work in us, so naturally speaking, apart from the Spirit of God changing this up, we are all tempted to twist our faith to meet our own preferences. Right? We hit something difficult, we hit something controversial, and we shape our thinking about that around our desires. But because the confessions are what they are, because they're objective, we can't just personalize them to suit us. And so, because this is a summary of what the church professes, what we believe, what we teach, we go to this, and they helpfully force us to reconsider our tendency to remake God in our own image, guiding us toward God as He reveals Himself in Scripture. So, the confessions and here's what I'm trying to say are real assets. They're, they're a real asset to. Helping us be faithful to God. Helping us to understand his word, to hold to his word, and to teach his word. So having said that, a bit of a longer introduction now. Let's get into the first article. Article 1 states, We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is only one God who is a uh, simple and spiritual being. A simple and spiritual being. And this is the most basic of starting points. But if we're talking about our confession, what is it that we believe? As we consider what, what it is that we know about life, the first question we need to ask is, what is real? And the reality of the existence of God is the first truth we need to reckon with. So this statement is a statement of faith. It's a confessional statement. It's something we say we believe. What do others believe? Well, we have agnostics. Agnostics are those who say you can't know if there's a God. In other words, you can't know what's real. There's atheists. The atheist says there is no God. And what is real for the atheist is what is here, earth, not heaven. And so what does progress look like for the atheist? It looks like leaving God behind. Then you have the deist. Deism. There is a God, the deist says, but, but he's uninvolved in, in the nature and history of this world. Apart from getting it going, he started it up. There's an original act there, but then he's kind of removed himself. So heaven, heaven's real, but it's a separate reality from earth. Then you have polytheists. There are many gods. Poly meaning many. And pantheists, a little different. Pantheist says all is God, Everything. And for the pantheist, what is real is the spiritual world of heaven. And this physical world that we are in now is a, is a weak projection of the real world, the spiritual world. So what does progress look like for the pantheist? It looks like becoming absorbed into God. Now, you've got an atheist over here, you got a pantheist way over here. What do these two have in common? They have in common the confusion of the creator and the creation. See, either you have somebody saying that creation is absorbed into the creator. In reality, everything is God. Or you have the creator absorbed into the creation. In reality, there is no God. These are the views out there. These are what people believe. What do we believe? Well, that there's one God, that there is only one God. In contrast to the atheist who says belief in God is foolish, we agree with the scripture that says the fool says in his heart there is no God. No, we confess there is a God and we confess further there is only one God, a single being whom we call God. That's our translation of the confession. And this, this was the distinctive belief that Israel held to. Among all the pagan nations of the time, with all their gods, Think of Egypt, right? All the different plagues were knocking out all the different Egyptian gods over all the different regions and parts of life. In contrast to all of that, Israel said, there's just one God. Famous passage from Deuteronomy 6, that the Jews recite, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the distinctive belief of God's Old Testament, Old Covenant people, but also the distinctive belief of the early church. In contrast with the religious pluralism of that time, ancient Rome and Greek, just think of the gods you may know from stories, mythology. In contrast to all of that, Paul comes to Athens, Acts 17, and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. In him we live and move and have our being. There's just one God. He made everything. Our text says the same kind of thing. Verse 12 Verse 12, the same Lord is Lord of all. And yet our text also mentions Jesus and God. Right? Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, kind of sounds like there's two gods. Well, the rest of Scripture makes clear there's one God. And the Belgic Confession helpfully outlines what the Trinity is all about in future articles. There's lots of scripture behind this, but just one verse is First Timothy 2, verse 5. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You have the Trinity there in one verse. So there is one God. What else do we believe about him? Well, we believe that he is a simple being. God is simple? Do you ever call people Simple. You know, if you were to call somebody simple, like you're at work or whatever, and you, you'd say, Oh, that guy's so simple, that's, that's negative, isn't it? Uh, you're saying that you have really basic knowledge or, or really basic ability. You don't mean that as a compliment. That's not what we mean when we're talking about God. God is simple. What that means is God is without parts. See, you and me, we're complex, we're made up of parts. Um, well, we're made up of body and soul. Those are, those are two parts. But even more than that, we're made up of various attributes, various characteristics. And we can kind of separate these attributes out. Sometimes we're this way, sometimes we're that way. And we can describe a person in that way. And, and these attributes that we have, they can be at odds with each other. So we can be conflicted is another way of saying that. You know, on the one hand, I, I feel this or I am this way. But on the other hand... I'm this way. And these attributes can come in tension with each other. Well, God's not like that. God is simple, or God simply is. John says, 1 John 1 verse 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. No conflict there. God is light. He's good in all that he is. He's good in all that he does. His attributes are all And they're not even attributes in the same way as we speak of ourselves. When we talk about the attributes of God, which is the second half of Article 1, they're not certain qualities that contribute to who God is. God doesn't just have these attributes. God is them. And in fact, we only know about these things, what they are, because he's revealed them to us. And he is these things in perfection, you can actually call them his perfections instead of his attributes so he embodies these things in the truest sense of the word what do i mean well one example love god doesn't first live so god is he's living and then he loves and it contributes to who he is it's not how it is with god god loves and in this act of love which he is always doing he lives and so when Scripture says God is love, this is why it can say that. How important is this? That God doesn't just sometimes do this or is this way sometimes, but he's, he always is. How important is that? It's very important. It's very important. The fact that God is simple means that God is entirely self-consistent. He is who he is. And that means that he is trustworthy, brothers and sisters. And that's important. In fact, he uses his simplicity to assure his people Israel, time and time again throughout the Old Covenant, that he is their faithful, loyal, trustworthy God. That he is Yahweh. I am who I am is what that means. Or I will be who I will be. There is no changing. Entirely self-consistent because he has no parts. But what about the judgment of God, you might ask? You know, God's justice and his wrath, doesn't that conflict with the grace of God, his mercy and his his love? How do these things go together? Well, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19 says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And so Michael Horton writes beautifully on this. He says, at the place where the outpouring of God's wrath is concentrated... So too is his love. Neither overwhelms or cancels each other out. God is just, and he's the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What else do we believe about him? Well, we believe that he's a spiritual being a spiritual being, a single, simple, and spiritual being. God is not physical, he doesn't have a body. There's a scripture that says, Exodus 31, I believe, that he uh, inscribed the law with his fingers. It's not to be taken overly literally. God doesn't have fingers. Jesus does, right? Jesus was incarnate, became incarnate. He, he had a body, and in fact, he still has that body, and he will have that body in glory forever. But even Jesus didn't have a body before when he was the eternal second person of the Trinity, What does this mean for our worship? Two things. Well, God is spirit, and John 4 says we are to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we have to resist that, that um, impulse to make him something that we can see. That's what other people do with God. But again, Paul in Athens says, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imaginations of man. This is why we're such a word-centered people, because that's what God has given us, his word, rather than images. But also, God, the fact that he's spiritual, this is something to worship him for. Because it means that he's different than us. He's not like something we can imagine or create. He's, he's bigger than that. He's greater than that. He's not of the earth. He's not limited to physical dimensions. He's not creaturely, is a way of saying this, but he is the Creator. So much for the different parts of the first half of this article here. We confess that he is a single, simple spiritual being. He's not physical. Is he real? It's hard to prove what can't be seen. Should we try to prove the existence of God? I mean, on the one hand, reason is a gift, right? Faith is not opposed to reason, There are those who have suggested that, who have taught that. Faith is not opposed to reason. Reason is good. We can confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, for example, and we can still provide evidence for uh, who he is, for his work. There's these five E's of the resurrection. I hope I can remember them, but five evidences of the resurrection that it's real. This is in addition to just taking Scripture at its word. There's the empty tomb, physical evidence. There's external evidence from people who weren't Christians, but ancient people from the time who spoke, ancient historians speaking of the resurrection of Jesus. There's eyewitnesses who were there. Well, we have that record in Scripture, don't we? There's also the enduring transformation of the apostles. These men who were scared, who denied Jesus and all of these things, and then they We're willing to go to the death for him after the resurrection. How else do you explain the remarkable turnaround that they made? And I'm forgetting the fifth E. But the point is there are these these evidences, these reasonable things that we can point to for the resurrection, which is at the center of our faith. So faith is not opposed to reason. But on the other hand, reason only takes us so far. Because the nature of faith is that it goes beyond what can be reasoned. Hebrews 11, we read that this morning, speaks to this. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for the proof of what is not seen. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. And so we walk, again, we said this too, by faith and not by sight. And so faith involves more than just reason, it involves more than just knowledge, but it also involves trust, Confidence. We confess with our mouths, but we believe in our hearts. This faith is worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not going to be satisfying to everybody, is it? You can imagine somebody saying, Well, give me more proof that God exists than just appealing to us some unseen spirit. How do we respond to that? Well, I would say God does exist, and He is real, and, and we can know this with certainty. As verse 12 of our text says, The same Lord is Lord of all, and He bestows His riches on all who call on Him. So so you and I call upon Him in true faith, and then we experience His riches. We're already experiencing His riches, the riches of His forgiveness, the riches of His strength, the riches of His comfort, of His joy, of His peace, of His hope. And we believe that we will experience these riches in even a greater way in the life to come. Those are tangible things we can point to. What's the basis for this assurance that we have, this certainty that what we are already beginning to experience we will also continue to experience in a greater way in the life to come? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is our assurance. With his spirit. Jesus the creator who entered into creation. The transcendent God descending as one of his creatures. The spiritual being taking on the physical. So that we might be saved. And so salvation is not found in leaving creation behind. But it's found in enjoying the new creation. Which will be complete physical and spiritual restoration. This is our hope. This is what we confess. This is what we believe. Now, there are many people who have faced opposition for confessing this doctrine, all that we've been speaking of this evening. Jesus is Lord, to summarize it, but all that that entails. And also those who put the Belgic Confession together. This this was written primarily by one man, Guido de Bray, but he wrote it in consultation with other pastors, lots of sharing and lots of consulting and advising on it, also comparing with other confessional documents of the time. And Guido de Bray was persecuted for holding to these beliefs, not just Article 1, but the rest of it. And yet, hold to them he did, to the point of imprisonment and death. This was written, do you know, 1561. Guido de Bray was imprisoned in April 1567. And on May 31st, just a little while later, he was hanged. And a large crowd watched as he was hanged, and he said, I am condemned to death today for the doctrine of the Son of God. Praise be to him. I would never have thought that God would have given me such an honor. And while he's still saying these words, he's not even done speaking yet, or as he's being done, the hangman pushes him off the scaffold. He dies. How does a man die In this way for his faith. How can he be this committed? Well if he not only confesses with his mouth. But also believes in his heart. And he truly did. Twelve days before he died. Guido wrote this in a letter to his wife. He wrote I am happy. My heart is light and it lacks nothing in my afflictions. I am so filled with the abundance of the richness of my God. That I have enough for me and all those to whom I can speak. So I pray, my God, that he will continue his kindness to me, his prisoner. The one in whom I have trusted will do it. For I have found by experience that he will never leave those who have trusted in him. The words he wrote to his wife as he's dying. And, and this, what he says at the end, he, he will not leave those who have trusted in him. This is the promise of God to all who believe. We have it in our text in verse 11. You will not be put to shame. And this promise holds true because Jesus has already won a great victory in being raised from death to life. He was raised, Romans says earlier, chapter 4, for our justification. So that whoever truly believes in him here, verse 10, is justified. And what's the purpose of being justified, being made right with God? Well, it's full salvation, isn't it? all that's entailed in salvation, life in glory, life lived in glory with the single, simple, spiritual being whom we call God, who has revealed himself fully to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we end it there, brothers and sisters. And let's just say this, as we live each day, from now until then, whenever then is, let us call upon his name, let us confess him with our mouths, and let us believe him in our hearts. Amen.